us pray. Father, we thank you today that you sent your one and only Son from heaven to earth, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, that he lived a perfect life, that he died a cruel death on the cross, he was buried in a borrowed tomb, and he was raised on the third day. And even now he's seated at your right hand, making intercession for us. We thank you for this love that is an everlasting love, a love that is beyond measure, that is so great to us as your children. And as we turn our attention in these moments to the subject of contentment, I pray that we would find our contentment in you, that we would realize that you've given us not just everything that we need, you've given us more than we could possibly need, over abundant. Your grace that is grace upon grace, super abundant in our lives, and that we are reconciled to you through the blood of your son, forgiven of our sins, and set to live a life of purpose for your glory. And I pray that would be our focus and our intent as we look at your word together today and ask it in Jesus' name, amen. I want to speak to you on a life of contentment from 1 Timothy chapter 6 and the first 10 verses as we continue in our series, Distinctives of a Gospel-Shaped Church. In his autobiography, Just As I Am, the late Billy Graham recall a story demonstrating that true greatness and true contentment is not defined by wealth or fame. He wrote this in part. He said, some years ago, Ruth and I had a vivid illustration of this on an island in the Caribbean. One of the wealthiest men in the world had asked us to come to his lavish home for lunch. He was 75 years old, and throughout the entire meal, he seemed close to tears. He said, I am the most miserable man in the world. Out there is my yacht. I can go anywhere I want to go. I have a private plane and helicopters. I have everything I want to make my life happy. And yet I am miserable. Billy Graham said, we talked to him and prayed with him, trying to point him to Christ who alone gives the lasting meaning to life. He said, and then we went down the hill to a small cottage where we were staying. That afternoon, the pastor of the local Baptist church came to call. He was an Englishman, and he too was a widower who spent most of his time taking care of two invalid sisters. He was full of enthusiasm and love for Christ and love for other people. And he said, I don't have two pounds to my name with a smile, but I am the happiest man on this island. Billy Graham related how he asked his wife, Ruth, after they left, who do you think is the richer man? She didn't even have to reply because they both already knew the answer. Contentment, as it is generally defined, is to be free from care uh, of satisfaction that comes from what you already have, So you're unconcerned about getting more and you understand what you already have and hold on to. In Hebrew, it simply means to be pleased. In Greek, contentment is more 
inward than satisfaction. It's more a state of mind, how you think and what your perception of things is. Martin Luther said, next to faith, this is the highest art, to be content in the calling in which God has placed you. And then he said, I have not learned it yet. Contentment as a Christian is an inward state of mind because you realize you have all you need in Christ. And the main point of the message today is not from the first two verses of this chapter, but I do want to address them as we open and consider the remainder of the passage. So I begin reading in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 1. The Bible says, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. During the time of the church at Ephesus and the setting that they were in, slavery was commonplace. Historically, there were as many as 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. Some were terribly abused, wrongfully treated. Others held more favorable positions, more like indentured servants. And the Bible deals with the reality of slavery in that context uh, and regulates it uh, regarding how they were to relate to one another. And it is evident in the days of the New Testament that slavery was a part of the social and the economic environment. And the specific issue that he's addressing here is that there were many slaves who had become Christians. And he was telling them how they were to relate to one another in the church. Now, in normal circumstances, slaves and their masters would have had no association outside of slavery. But with the gospel, these groups found themselves together in congregations which created problems that had to be addressed. Servants are said to be under a yoke, and they were to respect those that they served, and they were to count them as uh, worthy of honor and respect. If those who call on the name of God, whether servant or the one being served, misbehave themselves in that situation, Paul is saying that the name of God and his word would be in danger of being reviled or even blasphemed. Now, today, we think of slavery as being a thing of the past. Uh, because of the demise of the, of the transatlantic slave trade, and rightfully so, and all the wickedness that went along with that, we think about it being something that doesn't even exist. But according to the latest global estimates of modern slavery, there are just under 50 million people in the world who are in modern slavery, with roughly a quarter of those people being children. One organization defines modern slavery as when an individual is exploited by others for personal or commercial gain. So whether they're tricked or coerced or forced, they lose their freedom. And that includes human trafficking, forced labor, debt bondage, all sorts of situations that people might wrongfully be put into. The transforming power of the gospel should effectively destroy slavery racism, greed, and preference of one class over another. And the reason that should be the ultimate outcome 
is because lives are changed one by one. And when lives are changed, uh, families are transformed and ultimately cultures are transformed. So the point of the gospel is that freedom in Christ is for all people. It's for everybody. And that's the hope that we have in the gospel. Now we continue on in the last part of verse 2, and I'm going to go through verse 5. Teach and encourage these things. If anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the teaching that promotes godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but has an unhealthy interest in disputes and arguments over words. From these come envy, quarreling, slander, evil suspicions, and constant disagreement among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth, who imagine that godliness is the way to material gain. In approaching the conclusion of this epistle, Paul actually goes back to an idea that he introduced earlier in the first chapter. The problem was people were teaching false things And as they were teaching false things, they were leading other people astray. Timothy, as the pastor of the church, was to be on guard against anyone who would misuse the word of God and teach the congregation and the people in it any different doctrine. Now, to teach a different doctrine was to replace the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness with nonsense. Sound means to be healthy. Sound means to be uncorrupted. The false teachers then were in conflict with the teachers of the truth. And Timothy was one of those teachers of the truth. There are some unhealthy traits that are noted. The false teachers were puffed up with conceit. They actually thought they knew everything and they knew nothing. They were people who loved controversy. They They thrived on quarrels about certain words. So here's what was happening. Some denied God's word and they would use wrong content. Some ignored God's word and acted like it just wasn't there so that they could teach what they wanted. Some explained God's word, but they did it with wrong motivations so that they could get the people to do what they wanted them to do rather than what God wanted them to do. And then some undoubtedly were twisting God's word and they were taking it out of context. They were making it something that it was not. We face similar troubles today that we have to be on guard against. People denying the word, ignoring the word, explaining the word with wrong motives, and even twisting the word and leading people to wrong conduct. The product of what was being taught was that it was producing deception and slander and evil suspicions and constant friction. And you know what was particularly confusing to the people about this? Some of the people who were the false teachers were presenting themselves without a doubt as experts on the scripture, as religious leaders, as people who were to be trusted, as people who were to be followed after, And they were doing damage to the church. But the main problem that Paul writes about is that some of them saw godliness as a means of gain. What does that mean? Well, they were motivated in part by a desire for wealth and personal gain. 
there were people who exploited the church for their own enrichment. Christianity, even today, is filled with people who have attempted to profit from commercialized religion. And Paul has just told us leading up to this that he's not talking about uh, taking care of those who labor in the Word of God, who labor in teaching and properly caring for a, a pastoral leader in the church. So he wants to lay that foundation. Listen, I'm not talking about everybody, but he said, hey, you got to watch out for these people who think that godliness is a means of gain. And Paul, if you'll remember, found it necessary to say that he himself did not peddle the word of God for profit, and he had never coveted anything that the people had. When you go back to some of the church history in the Middle Ages, the church was discredited in the Middle Ages, for example, because of the sale of indulgences. There were people that were in it for ill-gotten financial gain. And I would like to tell you that that's a thing of the past and that doesn't happen anymore. It may be a bigger problem today than it's ever been. And the reason I say that is it, it is so easy through social media and multimedia and the constant access that we have to people globally, uh, where people have access to more people than they ever have before, to do this very thing. And I believe there are religious grifters today who do the same thing. In contrast to this, the Apostle Paul presents to Timothy a life of contentment. And I want us to consider three ways to rest in a life of contentment. First off, if you want to rest in a life of contentment, you need to prioritize godliness over gain. Now we look again at verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Now we live in an era of discontentment. Uh, Gallup released a, an article by John Clifton entitled The Global Rise of Unhappiness, which is actually based on a book. And as it turns out, in 2006, Gallup began conducting global research on the subject of well-being. And they used it interchangeably with the concept of happiness. And here's what their goal was. They wanted to look country by country, and they wanted to determine uh, how people's lives were going from their perspective. So what they did was they interviewed 5 million people. Now, by any statistical uh, measure at all, that is a significant study uh, when you interview 5 million people. At the beginning, they asked this question. Please imagine a ladder with steps numbered from zero at the bottom to 10 at the top. The top of the ladder represents the best possible life for you. And the bottom of the ladder represents the worst possible life for you. On which step of the ladder would you say you personally feel that you are standing at this time? And I'll focus just on the worst aspect here because when they first asked the question, only 1.6% of the people said that their lives were the worst possible life, that they were a zero, 1.6%. 15 years after they did this study, the numbers shifted statistically. And the worst life people had quadrupled to 7.6%. Obviously, subjective study has nothing ultimately to do with Christianity, but it's simply uh, uh, really a, a testimony of our times, that there is a growing discontentment in the world, 
even while global conditions in the world have improved significantly in the modern age. I mean, you know, you see around you how people think and how many people live their lives. There's an insatiable quest for more. We want more success and more money and more influence and more power and more pleasure, more, more, more. And yet the God of the Bible is calling us to a life of contentment. Paul had just confronted the false teachers who viewed godliness as a means of material gain. And now he makes it clear that godliness is a means of great gain when contentment goes along with it. So follow the logic here. There is great gain in godliness, but it may not be what you think. Godliness does not give financial gain. Godliness is gain when it is accompanied by contentment. So Paul employs a play on words. And he's reminding us that as followers of Christ, we should focus on pursuing godliness in our thoughts, our attitudes, our motivations, and our conduct. And the word that is used for contentment is actually translated as sufficiency. The adjective content means having a sufficiency in oneself. It's the same idea of what we would think about self-sufficiency. But the word Paul used is a word that was used by the Stoics for self-sufficiency independent of any circumstances. So the sufficiency of self is anchored in the sufficiency of God. So for us, it is Christ's sufficiency. It's not the self-sufficiency of the world. It is sufficiency that comes from who we are in Jesus Christ. Psalm 37 and verse 16 says, For a little which a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked. 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 8 says, And God is able to make every grace overflow to you, so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. Christian contentment comes from Christ and from the pursuit of the principles of godliness. Those who have discovered the real meaning of godliness then know the real meaning of contentment. Someone said contentment is a constant feast. He's richest who requires the least. Paul wrote from prison in Philippians 4 and verse 11 through 13. He said, for I've learned to be content in whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And then he said, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. She so said, well, okay, practically, how can I have this godliness with contentment? How, how does this become real in my life if I'm not content right now or I want to grow in this area? It begins with a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you have never repented of your sins and turned to Jesus by faith and embraced the good news of Jesus, receiving him into your life and accepting the gift of eternal life, you will never find contentment. It's impossible. It is unachievable. You will not find it. 
So for some of you today, the heart of this message is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved because in him you'll find contentment. That's the beginning point. But if you've trusted in Christ and perhaps you're saying, well, I know him as my savior. Maybe I've even been a Christian for a long time, but I I'm just don't feel contentment. You know what one problem could be? You could be directing your own life rather than living a surrendered life to Jesus. And you've got yourself in the situation that you're in because you've not submitted yourself to him. And the message for you today may be to yield your life so that he is directing you in all things by his word and by his spirit. And then focus on what you have not on what you don't have. Now, remember all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Was not the devil's tactic, the old serpent's tactic to convince Eve of what she did not have? Let's put ourselves in the Garden of Eden just for a moment. Could you imagine walking with God in the cool of the day? Could you imagine being so close with him in the presence of God that you had that type of fellowship and that type of relationship with God. God provided everything they could possibly ever need and then some. The garden was unbelievable of what God had provided for them. But the devil comes and he tells Eve, what about that one tree? What about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? God doesn't want you to partake of that tree because if you partake of that tree, you're going to be like him. So what he was saying in effect was God is withholding something from you that you need. And all of a sudden, she got the proverbial blinders on. She couldn't see everything that she had in the garden. All she could see was what she didn't have. And she took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil Sin entered into the world, death followed, separation followed, and she found out she had been deceived. Be careful in your life not to focus on what you don't have, but rather have a heart of gratitude for what you do have. And I believe godly people have an inner peace knowing that they are right with God. No matter what the circumstances are, they belong to God because he is Lord of their lives. And I say to you, prioritize godliness over gain. But then second, if you want to rest in a life of contentment, focus on the eternal and not the temporary. Verse 7, for we brought nothing into this world and we cannot take anything out of the world. It's been said that birth and death provide the bookends from which to appraise our material wealth. But there's much more here at hand. We brought nothing into this world. So what does a baby bring? Nothing. Nothing at all. Not even clothes. I mean, you have nothing. Zero. But here's what we're convinced of in this, in this culture, what people would want us to be convinced of. That the things that this temporary world has to offer, as we add them, then that is adding our value. That's adding to us our worth. But the reality is there is nothing that can be added to this 
life from a physical perspective that is going to change who we are before the Lord. We have been created in the image of God. You understand that to be created in the image of God speaks of the value that God has placed on your life and the value that God places on every life that he creates you in his image. But we have been redeemed when our faith is in Jesus by the blood of the lamb and we've been given the greatest gift that could ever be given. And there's nothing that could be greater than that. And if we think that something this world has to offer is better then our focus is wrong. But the back end of it is we cannot take anything out of this world either. Now this idea connects with Old Testament teaching. In Job 1 and verse 21, Job says, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I'm certain that if some of you had an opportunity today uh, to give a testimony of your life, you would say that one of the greatest lessons you've ever learned about contentment was when you were brought to the end of yourself or you had nothing else to depend on but God. Maybe it was in a health crisis and you hit the bottom in that crisis realizing how serious it was and and what the future may hold. And in that moment, God taught you about his sufficiency and you realized his goodness in your life and that his love is eternal. And I think Job realized that in his darkest hour, he understood that it wasn't the things that he possessed, it was his relationship with God. And that's so important for us because otherwise we'll be convinced that the things we're gathering are at some point going to make us happy and content, and yet they remain elusive. Leo Tolstoy, the Russian writer, wrote a short story entitled, How Much Land Does a Man Need? Obviously not anything to do with a Christian perspective, but I think by way of illustration, it draws an interesting parallel. His intent was to reflect on 19th century Russian society where the poor were deprived and the rich remained wealthy. He had his own ideas about that. But at any rate, land shortage was a major issue. So he associates the devil with the main character's greed for land. And in the story, Pahom is a peasant determined to rise to the upper class by purchasing as much land as possible. So here's what he thought. He thought, hey, if, if I just had enough land, I wouldn't even fear the devil. So what he did was he grew increasingly possessive of what he had. And he moved from place to place dissatisfied with what he had obtained. So one day a stranger comes to him and tells him that there's a village in a distant community that was selling their excellent land at a very cheap price. Moved by his greed, this man goes to investigate. The chief, the leader, agrees to sell home as much land as he could walk around in a day. But here was the caveat. Uh, he had to return to the exact location that he started or he would forfeit the land and the money. By afternoon, he realized he had encircled so much land that he was at risk of not making it back. So he began to run. Soon he became, became exhausted. And as the sun's setting, he falls down and he dies. 
His servant buries him. And he notes as he buries him that the only thing that he ever really needed was the six feet of land that he buried him in, in his grave. What an illustration of how we think that what we have is going to be forever ours. And we get caught up in these temporary things. But what does the word of God say? Look at verse 8. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. The words for food and clothing are actually plural. And they are used only here in the New Testament. It speaks of the most basic, necessary aspects of life. Now, if this is true, if this could actually be a reality for us, then why do we spend so much time and so much energy to accumulate material things? We're confronted all the time with investments and retirement and financial security and and independence. And the great goal of many is to live their entire life so they can achieve that security and that independence. After all, we're supposed to be good stewards. It'd be irresponsible if we didn't plan and if we didn't manage what God gave to us so that we wouldn't be a burden to other people. And ultimately, it's God who determines what he wants to entrust to us, whether it's a small amount or it's a big amount. But Jesus gives us the warning. And here's what Jesus said. He said, you cannot serve God and mammon. The point is not in how much you have. The point is not telling you you should not be a good steward of what you have and leverage it for the glory of God. The point is be careful about the accumulation of wealth because it can become a curse and not be a blessing. And it can cause you to not be truly dependent on God. So let me ask the question in this way. In your life, how much is enough? How much is enough? If you're chasing after your contentment and what you're holding on to, how are you going to know when you get it? What's going to satisfy you? The answer is nothing if your soul is not satisfied in God. Jesus said, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust won't destroy and where thieves won't break in and steal. He said, don't worry about your life, what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or your body, what you're going to wear. Life's more than food and clothing. Don't worry about any of those things because God knows you need these things. But then what did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33? He said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Jesus said, your number one life priority must be to seek first the kingdom of God in his righteousness. And God will take care of those basic things as you are faithful in following him. Now, I believe one of the most significant measures of our view of material things is our generosity or our, or our lack thereof. How we spend our time, how we invest our money, where we put our resources, those things are revealing. You know why they're revealing? Because every single person is born with a selfish bent towards self-preservation. All of us. If you look at America's household income and compare it to their level of giving, you'll find out some shocking things. You'll find out that the average American household gives only 
1.63% of their household income. Not, not just Christian, I'm talking about just anything. 1.63%. You say, well, it's a good thing we're Christians. Man, it's a good thing we're in the church because we are generous. Man, we give a lot. We're way different than that. Christian giving, hardly different at all. Only between 2 and 3% is given from people who say that they are Christian and have Christian households. But I got one more for you. Between 37 and 50% of professing Christians give nothing to their local church. That's zero. Absolutely nothing. Now, we should not judge another person when it comes to their material possessions, but I'll tell you what we must do. We must evaluate ourselves. We cannot take anything with us, but we can invest in eternity. Ask yourself when you're drawn toward accumulation for accumulation's sake, do I really need this? Will it improve the quality of my life or those around me? Will it help or hurt my relationship with God? Am I seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, or am I first seeking the things of this world? And friend, focus on the eternal, not the temporary. You don't want to be ashamed when you stand before the Lord because you've taken the talent that he gave you and you went and buried it in a hole somewhere. Use what he's given you. Leverage what he's given you for his glory because he's the one that gave it to you to begin with. And then thirdly, if you want to live and rest in a life of contentment, do not yield to the temptation of the love of money. Now, the desire for money is addressed here. And I want you to see clearly that the desire to be rich is even more dangerous than the riches themselves. So here's what he says in verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmless desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. This applies to the poor who want to be rich and the rich who desire more riches. Hey, there's some remarkably wealthy people in the Bible. I mean, majorly wealthy people. Abraham, David, Solomon, people that God saw fit to give them tremendous amounts uh, according to his own purposes. So the point is not how much you have. The point is what are you doing with what you have? How are you managing your life as a steward? If the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, then we have a responsibility to be faithful, whatever that amount is. And you may think to yourself, well, this certainly doesn't apply to me because I'm not rich. Well, I've got some more information for you. The United States is the richest nation on the earth collectively. There are some places that have higher GDPs, but from person to person, on average, we are the richest nation collectively on the earth. We have more millionaires and billionaires in the world than anybody else. 39% of the world's millionaires are American, according to a 2022 report. The net worth of people in the United States accounts for 31% of global net worth. And get this, we comprise 4.25% of the total world population. So we've got a third of the world's wealth, and we only comprise... 4.25% of the world's population. Now, we're going to get a little more close to home here, just in case you're not even in one of those categories that you might think you fit in. 
the median household income of $71,000 places a family in the top 4% of the richest people in the world. If your household income is $71,000 or somewhere in that range, you are better off than than 96% of the people in the world. Now get this. As an individual, if you make $60,000 or more yourself, you are in the top 1% of worldwide earners. $60,000. So whether we're lower, higher, whatever, we can at least relate and understand the greater point here. And whatever you have, whether it's a little bit or it's a whole lot, he warns us that those who are rich in this life need to be careful because we can't serve both God and mammon. And we should have a heart like the psalmist. In Psalm 62 and verse 10, it says, If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. So to fall into temptation means to give into it or to be overcome by it. Temptation is the desire to sin, to act against God's will. So notice what he addresses. First of all, he addresses the deception of money. It's described as a snare, a trap. A snare is used to take different kinds of birds or animals. It causes the bird or the animal to get entangled so they can be captured. Then he addresses the destruction of money. It plunges people into ruin and destruction. And plunge is a word that is used to mean sinking or a ship that would go down or to drown because of your harmful desires. And the desire to be rich can completely destroy a person just like if they're on a sinking ship or they're drowning. Now notice verse 10 as we pick back up. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now this is often misquoted as money is the root of all kinds of evil. That's not what it says. Money and possessions in and of themselves, they're morally neutral. They're they're not good or bad. They're not evil or, or wicked necessarily. It's what we do with them, how we value them, what our perspective is. And it's often rooted in a lack of contentment that we love money and we chase after it. And also, it's not wrong to enjoy good things or what God provides. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't say in verse 17 that God richly supplies all things to enjoy. So Paul's not going to say, hey, don't enjoy anything. You, you, You can't be blessed by this and then say, hey, God gave it all to you to richly enjoy. No, it all comes from God. It's his. It belongs to him. He gives us what he wants to give us. But the question is, is the love of money, a lust for it in that sense, causing you to have a lack of contentment? Are you longing for money? Because the root determines the fruit. So he addresses the deception, he addresses the destruction, and he addresses the delusion of money. Through this craving, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves. Here's the image. It's somebody that's walking on the right path. The light is shining on the path in front of them. And all of a sudden, they see something over on a side path. They see the rabbit trail, as it were. They say, hey, I'm going to chase after that. I'm going to go down that rabbit trail. And all of a sudden, they're on the darkness. They're not seeing the light. They're not on the path God wants them to be on. 
I think about the words of Jesus when he talked about the seed that fell on the thorny ground in the parable of the sower. The thorns grew up with the seed and eventually choked it out. And he said this represents people who are choked out by the worries and riches and pleasures of this life. Luke chapter 8. So pursuing riches might seem like a shortcut to happiness. It's get rich quick. It's that mentality. But then all of a sudden you wander away from the faith. So man, that wasn't worth it. That was not the value that I thought. Do not yield to the temptation of the love of money. I say this to you in closing. Find your contentment in God. Find your contentment in God. Are you content today in who you are in Christ? That's where contentment is to be found. God loves you with an everlasting love. You're not going to be more content regardless of what you have or what you look like or what your position is or any of that stuff. God says to you, the only place to find contentment is in Him. And if you will rest in that, you can live a life of contentment. Father, thank you today for the hope that we have in the gospel, the hope that we have in Jesus. We thank you that you have created us in your image. And I pray that every single person in this place today would know that they are loved They are valuable in Christ's sight. They've been made in his image. God, in the image of the everlasting God. And we thank you for the redemption that we have in you. And I pray you will protect us from following after, chasing after stuff that's just temporary. And help us to leverage and invest what we have for the upbuilding of your kingdom and for your ultimate glory. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.